Amen. You can have a seat. Those beautiful words in this, the, the lyrics this morning. His grace upon grace, love upon love, the endless, uh, infinite love of God cannot be exhausted, cannot be fully fathomed. It's, it numbers far more than the sand on the sea, seashore. That's hard to say. And that's what we get to celebrate this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 18. And before we jump into our text, I just want to commend you, church. We have said the last couple of weeks, the text has really drawn out the the need for all of us to to leverage our gifts and our service in various ways in the body. And I've just had conversation after conversation the last couple of weeks with people saying, I want to serve. I want to help. How can I help? How can I use my gifts? Where can I serve? How can I hold a baby? How can I host a community group? What can I do? And I just want to commend you for that and, and want to encourage you to keep that up. That's just amazing. That's what the gospel does to us. That's what Brian was just saying, that we don't just want to know about the gospel. We don't want to just know about Jesus. We want Jesus to transform us. And if he's transformed us, then it ought to overflow into action in the world. And it first overflows into action among our family. And so Uh, I just want to commend you for that. Great job. Keep it up. Let's look at our text this morning in Exodus chapter 31, verse 12 to 18. This morning, this text comes at the end of Moses' 40 days on Mount Sinai. It's kind of hard to to really remember the way that we study through the scriptures and, and read these texts in little chunks along the way. We've been studying since Exodus 19, 11 chapters of instruction on what God wants his people to to be and to do and and how he wants them to live. And then in Exodus, in our text today, in verse 18, God then gives Moses these commandments, these ordinances, this information, the, the instruction for the tabernacle. He's shown him, and he says, now go do. But, but, but at the end of all this instruction, and before they ever go lift a finger, which isn't so important for us to understand this morning, before they ever lift a finger to to build the tabernacle, before they ever even hear the commandments and the instructions of God and, and are told to go and do them, at the end of that instruction and before they ever go do a thing, verse 12 to 17, Sabbath, I want you to rest. And what's so amazing about this, we, we, we read this text, and maybe you're here this morning, you've been through where we've been in Exodus, and you're saying, Sabbath, again? Like, why do we need to hear this again? Didn't we cover this in Exodus 14 when they were walking out of the Red Sea and into the wilderness, 16 rather, and they were, they were getting the quail and the manna from heaven, and he told them to gather six days, but on the seventh to rest? Didn't we already cover that? Didn't we cover this in Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11 on the Sabbath commandment? Haven't we seen this enough? Why are we receiving this instruction again? Why is Sabbath mentioned seven times in the first five books of the Bible and over a hundred times in the Old Testament? Why in this text alone, in five verses, does it say Sabbath, the word Sabbath or its variation eight different times? Don't we, haven't we heard enough about Sabbath? What's interesting in this text is in those previous texts, we we learn that they are to Sabbath, that they must Sabbath, but in this text, we understand why. Because twice in this text this morning, we're going to see that it's a sign. That, That word's used twice. It's a sign. And you know as well as I do what signs do. Signs are nonverbal signs communication devices that communicate a message. If we're driving down the road and there's a road sign that says your exit is in one mile, it's telling you something, and it's, it's telling something to the world. And this is no different. What we have this morning in our text is the reason why they must Sabbath. The why. They, they receive this message that they are to Sabbath, and it is a sign communicating something specifically. And it's communicating four things. First, it's communicating something about us. We'll see that this morning. And then secondly, it's communicating something profound, something extraordinary. It's communicating the very heart of God. Our Sabbath keeping communicates something about us, and it also communicates by giving it, it communicates something about God and his love for us. 
And then together, those things communicate something to the world. When we practice the Sabbath, when we listen to this wisdom and we act on it, we are communicating something to the world. And then what we learn is ultimately Sabbath from the beginning was given to point us to communicate something about the true and better rest that's offered to us in Jesus. And so those are our four points this morning. How and why Sabbath communicates as a sign about us, about God, to the world, and also about Jesus and the true rest that he offers. So let's look at this this morning. First, what it communicates about us. We just lay this out there, give you the punchline, and then we'll unpack it. Ultimately, Israel's Sabbath-keeping communicates and signifies their complete and utter dependence and trust and hope in God. That's what it communicates in the act of Sabbathing, in the act of Sabbath-keeping, in the act of resting. It communicates that their hope and their complete dependence and utter trust is in God and God alone, not themselves and not anything else. We begin to see that in the text in verse 13. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign, there's the first reference to sign, a communication device. It's a sign communicating something between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Let's unpack this verse just a little bit in this first point here. First, above all. That's pretty strong language. Above all. Above all what? That's a, a comparison phrase. And we have to remember the context. And this is pretty amazing. When we go back 11 chapters to chapter 19, that's where they've come out of the Red Sea. They've come out of the wilderness, little early phase of the wilderness. And now they're at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, God rehearses to them, reminds them of his extraordinary grace. I rescued you out of Egypt. And I didn't do it because of anything that you did, anything that you said, anything that you earned from me. I did it because I love you. I love you. I love you. I want you. And then what does he get? What do we get in Exodus chapter 20? We get the commandments, the ordinances. After that, 21 to 24, we get these, these words of instruction. I rescued you, and this, in light of that rescue, is how I want you to live. And then what have we been looking at since chapter 25 all the way up to chapter 30? We've been looking at the building of the tabernacle or, or God's communication that he is going to dwell with his people. And all of that, if we lose sight of this, all of that has been, what do all those four things, those four categories have in common? They're instruction. It's information. They haven't lifted a single finger yet to build the tabernacle. They've only, Moses has received this instruction. And now, at the end of this verse, verse 18, he's going back to the people to give them, communicate all of this information and instruction. Before they ever lifted a finger in action, God has given them this instruction and he's communicating something and he says, above all. All else, above all of that, another way to translate above all else is before all of that. Before you do a single thing, and the context tells us, before you do this action of building and this action of living and this action of obeying, before you ever do any of that, rest. Rest. Rest in who I am. Rest in what I have said. Rest in what I have done in your life. Rest in me. Don't earn, don't do in order to rest, in order to gain my acceptance and approval. No, rest in my acceptance and approval and love of you and then go do and then go live. All of this is instruction and why does he give this instruction? It's again in the text in verse 13, the last part of verse 13. Why? That you may know, I want you to rest, I want you to Sabbath, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. That word is significant. Sanctify means to set apart. It means to consecrate. It means to cleanse. It means to make holy. In other words, what God is saying here is, it's not your obedience keeping to the commandments that makes you holy. It's not your 
your ordinance keeping that makes you holy. It's not, don't ever confuse, don't ever believe that you're building the tabernacle for me to dwell in your midst is what makes you holy. Your doing does not make you holy. Who makes them holy according to this text? The Lord and the Lord alone. He alone does the sanctifying. He alone, His grace alone does the rescuing. His grace alone does the transforming. His grace alone does the, the making holy. Not their works. Not their achieving. Not their accomplishments. Not their performance. He alone does this. And why does he give this command? So that you know. I want you to rest before you ever do a thing. I want you to rest in what I've instructed, what I've done, who I am, and what I've done in your life. It's not your work that sanctifies. It's the Lord's work. That's what he's telling Israel. It's God's grace alone that makes them holy. So resting, refraining, restraining themselves from working says their trust and their hope is in his work alone. It's communicating something to them, and it's also communicating something from them. That when they restrain themselves from their work, they're communicating, my hope is not in my work, my hope is in your work on my behalf. When they restrain themselves from their action, when they cease, which is what the word Sabbath means, cease from action, from the mundane craftsmanship, which is so interesting because it comes right after the craftsmen are, are instituted, cease from the everyday man's work. That's what that word means. The ordinary, everyday, craftsman-skilled, detailed work that you are gifted at, cease from that. When you cease from that, you are communicating your hope is not in that, it's in his work on your behalf. When they rest, it communicates their complete dependence and reliance and hope in God, think about it. Think about it. If they are resting from their work, who is their trust and hope in? It's in his work. If they're resting from their provision for themselves, who is their hope in? It's in his provision. It's in, their hope is in God in his provision. And when they rest from their protection of themselves, their meticulous care for themselves, who are they hoping will meticulously care for them? They're hoping in God. Reverse it. If they don't rest in his work, in his provision, in his protection, whose work, provision, and protection are they hoping in and trusting in? They're hoping in themselves. They're trusting in their own actions. They're trusting in their own work. They're trusting in their own performance. This is why Sabbath says something profound about us. It reveals who we really trust in. It reveals who is totally in control of our lives. It reveals our hearts to ourselves. Have you ever tried to really rest on a day? Just take a day and just rest? It's really difficult. It's hard. You immediately start to go, uh, ah, yeah, I got to go, I got to do, I got to build, I got to make, I got to solve, I got I to fix, I got to go, I gotta, I've got all these problems to fix. You, it's like it's almost immediately now all the problems of the world become alive. It's like you, did, you weren't aware of them and now you're suddenly aware of them. Because Sabbath is a discipline of abstinence. It's a discipline of restraint. There are disciplines, spiritual disciplines that we can practice. Fasting is an example. Silence is an example. Solitude is an example. And Sabbath is an example. And it's in restraining ourselves or abstaining from something that suddenly we realize something about ourselves. When you abstain from food in fasting, for example, when you abstain from food, what do you do? You suddenly get hungry. And then you start to wonder, am I hungering for the right things? That's the purpose of fasting. When we Sabbath, we are resting, abstaining from our work. And what are we saying in that moment? What are we revealing to our hearts is, is am I hoping and trusting in the right strength, the right power, the right person? Is my hope in these little hands right here, in this little brain right here, in this heart, in this energy right here, or is my hope in God, in his hands, in his strength, in his wisdom, in his power, where's my hope? Where's my strength? If we reject this command, 
If we reject this gift, it's really a gift. If we reject this gift, what we're saying is that we don't need God. We don't need his wisdom. What's worse is if we reject this gift, what we're saying is, I'm better than God. I don't need to rest. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, can, I don't sleep. I don't slumber. I don't have to rest. I, don't, I can do everything. I'm all-knowing. I'm all-going. I have all the answers. I can solve all the problems. I'm like God. I'm better than him. When we reject this wisdom and this gift, I don't need rest. This is why refusing to keep this imperative comes with a death penalty. Twice, three times actually in the text, it says that anyone, everyone who profanes it, verse 14, everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. And then there's a variation of that. Whoever does not, does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. And then it says it again down in, in verse 15, six days you shall work, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Now we know this intuitively, physically. We, if we overwork, we will work ourselves into the ground. We will, we, our bodies will shut down. Maybe our minds say we can keep going, but our bodies will disagree with us. <laughs> and what nature preaches to us generally saying, no, you, you are not all going, no, you must sleep, no, you, you have to rest. If you ignore this, you will die. What nature preaches to us generally, God says to us specifically, you're not God. You need rest. Now, that's confrontational to arrogant, prideful man. That's confrontational to, to our arrogant, prideful hearts that think, I have all the answers, I have all the strength, I have all the ability. But here what we're learning is, if you ignore this, if you reject this wisdom, if you reject this gift, no, you'll find out the hard way. You're not God. And how will we find out? You will die. So there's a natural implication here, and there's also a spiritual, personal truth here in this. You are not God. You need rest. But here's the other beautiful thing about this. There's a secondary inverse. There's, a, there's grace that's dripping from the pages, dripping from that command. You are not God. You need rest. But guess what? You don't have to be God. You can rest. Hear those words. One confronts our pride. The other, our anxiety and our panic. One says, you're not God, you need rest. Humble yourself. The other says, but you don't have to be God. You can rest. One, on, on the one hand, many of us think, if I, don't, if I rest, who's going to come through? Who's going to work? Who's going to provide? Who's going to do the work? Who's going to solve the problems? Who's going to fix this? If I rest, who... And in that, we're, we're, we're missing God. We're implying that we are the solvers, the, the, the solution. We are the, the protectors and providers of our lives. And that's why we need that command, that, that, that blunt confrontation of this word. But on the other hand, many of us are panicky and anxious because we don't know who's going to come through. And we think we're constantly polishing the outside. I gotta look right, I gotta act right, I gotta justify, I gotta overperform, I gotta overwork, I gotta, I gotta look right, I gotta, I gotta do all these things. And here in this word, we're hearing a gracious invitation. What liberating, truly freeing words we're hearing here. You don't have to overwork, you don't have to have all the answers. Do you hear that? Maybe that's the greatest thing you need to hear this morning. You don't have to have all the strength. You don't have to have all the, the words of wisdom. You don't have to be the Savior. You don't have to save yourself. You don't have to solve. You don't have to overperform. You don't have to overjustify. You don't have to keep working on a spiritual resume that says, look at me, look at how good I am, and look at how great I've done, and, and look at my works, and look at my moral performance. You don't have to do that. What great good news. No, you can rest. You can 
You can relax into the arms of God and watch him provide. What's this look like? It looks like Exodus chapter 14. Do you remember the scene? Exodus chapter 14, they've just come out of Egypt, but they're right on the cusp of the Red Sea. And all the people get to the edge of the Red Sea, and what do they, what do they see? They, they see the Red Sea, and they're terrified, which clearly says it's not some water they can wade through. It's, it's insurmountable. There's something in front of us. If we advance into it, it leads to death. And then what's behind them? Pharaoh's armies with all of his chariots. And they turn around and his chariots are impending. They're coming and they're terrified. And they say, Moses, did you lead us out here to die? Death in one direction, death in the other direction. And what does Moses say in Exodus 14, 13? You need only be silent and watch the Lord fight for you. It says in Exodus 13, 14, 13, you need only, the Lord will fight for you. He will go to blows for you. That's what it means. He will, he will raise up his strong and mighty arm for you. He will work for you. You need only be silent. And silence, we often think, is just close our mouths. Well, that's it. That's true. But it also means you don't have to lift a finger. You don't have to do a thing. You are surrounded by death. Yes, death is coming in. You're surrounded by chaos, and yes, chaos is coming in. And what is our tendency when we're surrounded by chaos and surrounded by death? We take the grip of our lives. We take hold and we say, I will solve the problem. I will come to the rescue. I will fix. I will, I will provide. I will protect. And what is God inviting Israel to do left and right and once again in this text? And what What's he inviting you to do? Just be silent. Let go. Rest in his rescuing, loving, ridiculous grace. That's it. And that is also how you're saved. That's also how we are rescued in salvation. That's also how we are redeemed. That's it. What do we think? That's too easy. I can't do that. <laughs> what do we do? We grab again. We try to take control. And here we're told, no, resting. Resting's a gift and it's given and it tells, it communicates something about you. It communicates where your hope is, where your trust is. It communicates, it reveals it, and it communicates it when you do it. And all of this is a gracious gift, and that leads us to our second point, and it, and it leads us really to the most amazing aspect of this text, and that's what it communicates about God. So it communicates something about us, but it also communicates something profound about God. Sabbath is a sign of his extraordinary love. What we're getting in this text is a glimpse into the very heart of God, into what love, true love, really is. You see it, don't you? This is not love based on performance. Live up to my expectations and then I will love you. That's not what this text is. They, they, they've been given instruction 11 chapters of instruction, of information, and before they could ever lift a finger, before they could ever perform, before they could ever meet some sort of expectations, he says, rest. I love you. I love you because I love you because I love you. I love you before you ever perform. I love you in spite of your performance. That's true love. And it's extraordinary, and it is so radical. It is completely contrary to the air we breathe in this world, to the way that you and I are raised to love. We're raised to love conditionally. We, we, we hear to love unconditionally, but we act conditionally in almost every relationship. This is so extraordinarily different from everything in the world, and it's extraordinarily different for Israel in this very context. Let's, let's see this. Let's remember this. Don't forget, they are only a few months removed from what? Where did they just come from? From Egypt. And what was Egypt? 
Who was the leader of Egypt? The serpent king Pharaoh. And what was his regard for them? He had absolutely no care and no concern for them. Listen to what the text says back in, 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 in the early parts of Exodus. Exodus 1.11, he sent taskmasters to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 13, chapter 113, they ruthlessly worked the people worked the people, and made their lives bitter with hard service. Exodus 1.16, he ordered all their firstborn sons killed and then expected them to go on whistling while they work. Exodus 2.23, the people groaned because of their slavery. It literally, it's like feeling oppressed down and ground out because of their slavery. Exodus 5.18, the Egyptians doubled their workload, taking away the resources, making it even harder for them to work. Pharaoh had no concern, none whatsoever for the Israelites. In fact, his slogan, his, his motto, if you will, in the, in the text based on those verses is, work or die. Your value is in what you produce for me. If you're not going to produce, then you're done. That is 100% a consumeristic mindset. That's the world and the air we live in and breathe. Consumeristic relationships and consumeristic love. I'll love you so long as you meet my needs. But when you don't meet my needs anymore, I'm gone. I'm out of here. And this is exactly how Pharaoh loved, cared, thought of, of, of Israel. There was no care. You're only a commodity to me. I will use you until you're not useful to me anymore, and then I will, I, will get, I will dismiss you. I will remove you. I'll kill you. Work or die. Your value is in what you produce. And In other words, a positive way of saying it, the inverse way of saying it, is work will set you free. Work will set you free. That's the motto of Pharaoh. Ironically, that is also the motto. I said it's, it's the motto, it's been the motto of Pharaoh because it's the motto from the fall. It's the motto of the world we live in. It's the motto that was on the gates of every concentration camp in Nazi Germany. If you've ever been to Dachau, you've seen this sign right here. Dachau is one of the first concentration camps just outside of Munich, Germany. It was the concentration camp that they perfected all of their torture, all of their medical experiments, all of their labor concentration camps. It's where they began to introduce the gas chambers, began to introduce the, the crematoriums. And this sign literally reads in German, work makes you free. Work makes you free. And the irony of this is that 200,000 people, over 200,000 people walked through those gates, walked past those doors, hearing work makes you free, tempted to believe the lie that work will set you free. And on the other side of those gates, they walked into overwork, literally overwork into death. They walked into concentration camps that tortured with medical experiments in Barrack X. They walked into uh, uh, what looked like showers, which were really gas chambers, and one door was in gas chamber, and the other door was not an exit outside to freedom and life. The other door was into a crematorium. It's sobering and terrifying all at the same moment to stand in that place right there. And what was a lie in Dachau and Auschwitz? And what's a lie in Egypt? And what was a lie from the beginning? God says, I am what sets you free. My work sets you free. In an absolute contrast to the air of the world, the, the way of the world, the love of the world, and an absolute contrast to the fallen world that we live in, here what we're learning is that God infinitely loves, infinitely cares. It's not your work, you must work or die. It's you must rest or die. You must trust my work or die. It, it, it's, 
It's, your work. it's not your work that gives you value. It's, your, it's my work on your behalf. It's, it's not work that sets you free. It's rest will set you free. Can you imagine? Think for a second. As we read the text, it's not wrong for us to think about how did the Israelites feel in this moment? How did they hear these words? If you came out of slavery, out from under the serpent king, and you walked in, you've transferred your allegiance to a new king, the question on the table is, what's that king like? And what are they hearing in this moment? He is extremely, absolutely opposite of anything you've ever experienced in your life. Supernaturally, extraordinarily opposite. He, he doesn't want to grind you into the ground. He wants to give you life. He doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to give you life. Remember, they were in a building project in Egypt to build all of those pyramids. And, and what are they moving into? And they're hearing building project again. But the two different kings are radically different. One wants to destroy and bring to death. The other wants to, to, to refresh and to bring life. He, he's not a terrifying tyrant king like serpent king Pharaoh. He, he's a totally different king. He's a totally different ruler. He's a loving, benevolent, caring God. He's a good God. He wants to provide for me. He wants to, to, to refresh me. He wants to breathe life into me, not take out of me. This is extraordinary. This is a, 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 an indicator, a window into the very heart of God. Many of you have wondered or are wondering right now, what does it look like to submit fully to God? Well, what does it look like to yield myself to him? To, to, you remember Israel's building their lives around the, the tabernacle. Their lives are literally physically centered around the tabernacle. Now their time is centered around God. The space and time, everything is centered around God. And the question on the table, what's he like? The question that you and I ask as we submit to God, as we submit to Jesus, as we, as we say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow your lead and your leadership in every intimate detail and area of my life. But, 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 but what, what, what does that mean? What, what, what does that look like? What, what are you going to ask me to do? What are you going to ask me to give up? That's the question on the table. We're not asking the question like, is he like Pharaoh? What we're asking is, what's he going to ask me to give up? What's he going to ask me to do? How, what, what might he ask me to, to do in following him? What's he like? What's he going to take from me? Is he going to grind me into the ground? Is he going to use me? The text is clear. No, 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 no. No. He is an absolutely loving Father, he cares for us meticulously with every detail. He will provide, he will protect, he will guard. Before we ever lift a finger, he wants us to rest in the identity that he's provided for us. Rest in the rescue that he's given. Rest in the, in the instructions that he's given. Rest in the relationship that he promises. Rest in the fact that he promises to dwell with us. Rest in that before we ever go do. He is not serpent king Pharaoh. He is God. What will it be like to submit to his rule? It'll be like rest. It'll be like joy. It'll be refreshing. It'll be like life. That's what it looks like to submit to the rule and the reign of King Jesus. Will, will, will it be safe? Will it be dangerous? Will I have to give up some things? Absolutely. But it will be good. Because it overflows from his very heart. This is why in the text in verse 14, it says that God has set this Sabbath apart for you. For you. It's good for you because it overflows from his good heart, his loving care. That leads us to our third point, what Sabbath keeping communicates to the world. We're going to be brief on this point, but if, if, if in the one hand it communicates my faith, if it, if, it, if it reveals my faith to me and it also communicates my faith 
in him. Well, on the other hand, it communicates his faithfulness to me. It communicates that he is a faithful God, a loving God. And when you take those two things together, what we have and what it communicates to the world is what it looks like to be in intimate relationship with God. It looks like ordering my life around him every way, in every place, and in every time. All the way down to the level of my time, I will submit to him. And, and does it look like an abusive relationship, a power-hungry relationship, one that's going to, where he takes and takes and takes and grinds us on the ground? No, 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 no. It looks like a loving father who wants to care for his child, who wants to give and give and give over and over again. And this is what it communicates to the world. It's seen in the text twice, verse 12b and then verse 16 and 17. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And then it's said again in verse 16b. Throughout your generations, as a covenant forever, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. Understand what this is, is saying here. First and foremost... This is going to raise eyebrows if we do this. If, if they do this and, and they obey this command to, to rest, when the harvest is full, they're told to do this elsewhere in the, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, even when the harvest is full. They're to practice the, the seventh day, the Sabbath. They're, they're to do this. If they're going to do this, it's going to raise eyebrows. And the first people that it's going to raise eyebrows among is the next generation. Their Sabbath-keeping is communicating what it looks like to trust God to their children. Think about this. Mom, mom Dad, why, why aren't we out in the, the field? The field's full. We're, the, the crop has come in. The, the harvest is here. Why aren't we out there? Don't we need to go? Don't we need to do this? What, what are we doing? What are we, why are we resting? Why are we Sabbathing? Why are we taking this day? And how does faithful mom and dad respond, obeying this command and, and being wise according to this command? Son, daughter, there's just some things that are more important in life. Son, daughter, our faith is not in that harvest. Our hope is not in these hands. Our trust is not in our energy, our work, our effort. Our, our trust is not in our performance. We serve a good and faithful, loving God. He will provide. Look, let me tell you the story about Exodus chapter 16 where he did it. Hey, let me tell you the story in Numbers where they were longing for meat in the wilderness. And he provided so much quail for them, so much Chick-fil-A for them. That it says in the text that they could walk in any direction one day's journey. A day's journey. And it says in the text that it was two cubits length deep on the ground. Two cubits. That's one cubit right there. Two cubits deep. That's how much quail was on the ground in every direction you walked for a day. Is God faithful? Watch. Watch and see as we rest as we celebrate, as we worship him. Think about the surrounding nations. They do what? They, they, they work six days, and they Sabbath, they rest on the seventh, trusting their God to provide, and he does? Think about the eyebrows that it raises. Living this way raises eyebrows. So too does following Christ. Submitting to Him, shifting our allegiance from self to Him, it, it shapes us, it changes us, it, it looks different. We become an alternate community within a community. We love differently, we serve differently, we go differently, and our time is different. Our routines and rhythms are different. And so the question on the table for us is, is your routine and rhythm different from the rest of the world? Does your rhythm and your routine, does it raise eyebrows? Certainly our rhythms and routines can raise eyebrows. The question on the table is, does it raise eyebrows to the honor and the glory of God's faithfulness or to your own? Whose hands does it glorify, your rhythm and your routine? 
Does it, does it glorify his hands to provide for you, or does it glorify yours? That leads us to the last point. Ultimately, Sabbath was given. It, it communicates something about us, our faith. It reveals it to us. It communicates it to the world. It reveals something about God, his faithfulness, his extraordinary love, his gracious compassion and care for us. It communicates that to the world, both of those together to the world. But ultimately, Sabbath rest was given to point us to true and better rest. It, it wasn't given so that we would become legalistically adopting this, this practice, legalistic, legalist on this practice. This is what Jesus teaches us in the New Testament. Because Jesus, he kept the Sabbath. He didn't keep their legalistic, the Pharisees' legalistic practices on the Sabbath. And what did he do over and over and over again on the Sabbath? He healed. He breathed life into, not take life out of. He says in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, 28, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That means that he's the one that has the ability to give true Sabbath rest. Ultimately, keeping Sabbath, practicing Sabbath, following this rhythm and routine that God has given us wisely and generously, it communicates to us the true and better rest that's offered to us in Christ. Again, it's in the text in verse 17. It's a sign forever between me and you. There's the second time it said it, a sign. Forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. What is God doing here? He's connecting his creation, his work at creation and his Sabbath rest in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He's connecting that to their creation and their Sabbath rest. If you look in the text, in Genesis chapter 1, it says six times that God created, he spoke and created, and the seventh, he spoke and he rested. In, in Exodus, we haven't really drawn it out, but in the text, it says seven different times. Six times the Lord said, make, inviting them into action, and the seventh time is in this text. Now rest. He's connecting his creation and his rest with their creation and their rest. And he's showing us something. In the text, in, in Exodus 17, he's quoting in Genesis. He's quoting Genesis 1. But when we, it's amazing when we study Genesis chapter 1. And we see that those first six days he created. And there was morning and there was evening. There was morning and there was evening. Six different times. But when you get to, to the seventh day, Sabbath. When God rested, there's no morning, there's no evening. It doesn't say morning or evening in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. What's that about? Why? Because that's what they were supposed to experience forever. That's what morning and evening and, and midday and, and 3 p.m., and, and, and every in, everything in between was supposed to be like that. What did God do? Listen, he did not cease because he was an old man and needed to take a break, wipe his brow. He was not worn out. He did not need to be recharged. You say, Neil, wait a second. There's a word here. It says in verse 17, on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. What? I, it sounds like God needed a break. We got to study the word. The word refreshed is yinefesh, and it means to cease from activity, to breathe. It, it communicates what God was doing on the seventh day. He was taking in life. He was taking in his creation. He was looking and glorying in his activity, in his work. He was celebrating his work. He was, he was worshiping, celebrating himself and all that he had done. Look at all of this. It's so beautiful. It's so glorious. It's so wonderful. Look at all of this. And who's right there with them? Man, come here. Look at this. Look at what I've created and bask in this. Enjoy what I've done for you to enjoy. I'm inviting you into my rest. But you know the rest of the story. In Genesis chapter 3, what does man do? He lifts his fist to God. He says, no, I'm a better savior. I'm a better king. I'm a better ruler. I know what's best for me. I'm not going to rest in your rest. I'm going to 
I'm going to rebel. I'm not going to submit to your lead. I'm going to go out from under your lead. And launching out, un, out from under God's covering, God's leadership, God's care, launching out into the world on his own, immediately we feel the weight of sin, the weight of responsibility. If we're not going to submit to his lead and we're going to be the ones in the lead, if we're not going to submit to his truth, and then we have to be the ones that determine truth. We have to be the ones that determine right and wrong. We have to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. It's all up to me. If I don't come through, who else is going to come through? I've rejected God. I am God. I don't need God. I'm the solution. I'm the, the answer. I'm the one that provides. I'm the one that comes to the rescue. And in that place, we're crushed we are weighed down because now all the anxiety, all the fear, all the worry, all the problems, everything in the world is on us. Now, we have to be the kings and the rulers of the world. We have to come through. We have to provide. We have to rescue. We have to do all of these things. We got what we wanted, like a toddler and a teenager. And then we find out what we wanted is not what we needed. And now in that place, burdened by the weight of having all the answers, of having to have all the answers, of the, of the weight of having to have, to, 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 to be the responsible one for all truth, to be the one with the burdens of the world on my shoulders, now in that crushed, anxious, worry-filled, fear-filled place, we're, we're desperate. And we're longing for someone to take the load off of our shoulders. Oh, if there was just one that would take the burden. Oh, if there was just one to take the load. Oh, if there was just one that would carry the weight. Oh, if there was just one that had the answer, that, that had the strength, that had the power. Oh, if I could just rest. And then we hear messages like this. Oh, it's in God. Oh, it's in Christ. Oh, that's the answer. Oh, he's the hope. Oh, he's. And then we, but I've carried it so long. I've done it so long. Will he receive me? Will he even accept me? Will he even take the load from me? Enter Jesus. And what does he embody? And what does he say? He embodies our loving father. And what does he say? Come home. Come home, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Weary and heavy laden, come home all those who are overworked. Come home all those who are carrying their own load. All those who are carrying their own burdens. All those who are carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. All those who think they have to have all the answers. All those who think that they can solve the problems of the world. Come home. Come to me, all who, are la who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. There it is, Neil. You told me he, he wasn't going to burden me. He wasn't going to crush me. He's telling me to take his yoke on me. That's not, that's, that sounds like Pharaoh. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is extraordinary. This is the very heart of God. This is the very life of Jesus. This is the very reason he came, is to take the burden of sin off our shoulders, the greatest burden that sits on all of our shoulders, and to take the greatest burden of our living, independent, autonomous lives apart from him, to take it on himself. The writer of Hebrews says that there is a true and better Sabbath rest that's offered to us in Jesus. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, it says that this promise of entering into Jesus' rest, let, let us enter into it while it's still offered to us, while it still stands, while it still remains. In other words, it's offered to you, it's being offered to you to the, this morning. Let us enter into that rest. Hebrews 4, 9, he calls it the true eternal Sabbath rest in Jesus. And he pleads with us in Hebrews 4.1 and 4.11. He pleads with us, don't miss this rest. How can I miss the rest of Jesus? Because you're trusting in your own work. 
Because you're trusting in your own strengths. Because you're trusting in these hands. Because you're trusting in this mind. Because you're trusting in this heart. Because you're trusting in this body. Because you're trusting in yourself. He pleads with us, don't miss the rest that's Jesus, that Jesus offers because you hope in yourself. No, hope in him. And then what does he say in Hebrews 4.10 and Hebrews 4.3? Anyone who trusts in Jesus' work on their behalf, and he says it assuredly, has entered into the rest that God offers. Anyone who trusts in Jesus' work, anyone who trusts in his activity, his hands, his wisdom, his power, his grace, has rested from their own and rest in the work and the Sabbath that God offers. Is your hope and confidence in God's work this morning? Is your hope and confidence in his provision on your behalf, in his protection, or is it in your own? Do you see his loving care in providing this imperative to us? Do you, is your, is, are, are the rhythms of your life distinct and eyebrow-raising to your children, to the next generation, to the community that we live in, to the world? Are you walking every day through the work will set you free gate? Is that the gate and the way and the mode that you're living? Work will set you free. Just keep working. Just keep working. Just keep working. That'll set you free. Are you walking through those gates which ultimately lead to death or are you walking through the arms wide open, arms of Jesus, clinging to him, resting in him, falling back into his arms which leads to life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the the joy you set before us in this offer of rest. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and and your love that's displayed in this text. May we not miss the rest that you offer us in Jesus. As we come to this table, may we see what these elements signify, the blood shed for us, Jesus' body broken for us. May we see the work that Jesus did on our behalf. And may we hope in it. Not the elements, not the cup, not the bread, but Jesus. Not our works, not our keeping the elements, not our keeping Sabbath, not our doing on your, on, on your behalf, but your work on our behalf. May that be true. May no one miss the rest that Jesus offers because they're hoping in themselves this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to celebrate today, we're going to come to the table.